stepping from their Rigelian spaceship, the God of Thunder and his emotionless companion find themselves in a galaxy totally beyond our meager powers of description. It is truly a world which is not a world, existing in a time which is more than time. My very senses reel before this sight which doth confront us. Of all the galaxies known to man or mortal, this is surely the most incomprehensible. We are in the center of the Black Galaxy. My sensitizers detect the presence of Ego, classification, multiple virus living matter, size, planetary range, location, existing not in physical universe, but in fluid bioverse. Welcome to Artifacts of Infinity, where we dive into the infinite abyss of Marvel's cosmic universe. I'm Jonathan Hudson. And I'm Everett Christensen. This is episode 8, and today we'll be covering Thor 131 through the beginning of 134, and gosh, am I excited. We love Thor. My love of Thor comes kind of more recent. I got my start diving into the Walter Simonson uh, collected editions a couple years back after listening to a podcast about it. And I have read that whole series, and then I took a break, and then I dove into the Aaron series at the beginning of the God of Thunder run. And I have just become a huge fan, and I'm delighted to get to this stuff. Yeah, I have to uh, totally say that uh, me coming to love Thor came in much the same package, although it was a few years ago that... uh, I was just on the internet and I saw the Scourge standing alone at Gallibrew and then I was very curious about the story surrounding it. And that was my introduction to Simonson Thor. And yeah, the Aaron God of Thunder run was absolutely incredible. So Yeah, I I got my start, you know, when I started reading that God of Thunder run, I, I know it's kind of controversial, but I started reading that at the beginning and stuck with Aaron through the whole run. I read every single tie-in to War of the Realms, uh, no matter how tangential, and I've been following the uh, Avengers run since then and the Valkyrie stuff, and it's just, it's he's gone from being a character that I was aware of and disinterested in as a kid to, as an adult, him being one of my very top favorite characters. So we're starting here at Thor 131, uh, but it's still in the 1960s. Thor is numbered so high because the original title, Journey into Mystery, had for some time before essentially been co-opted by stories of the Golden Avenger. Most of Thor's early stories are also terrestrial in nature, Seemingly strange for a space god, but as we were prone to saying, uh, it's still early days yet. We will likely be covering a lot of Thor content as we move forward, but as we're rapidly approaching the Kree-Skrull War, we thought it'd be a good idea to round out our coverage with some classic Thor. Now, it's arguable that Thor's confrontations with Olympus may also qualify as cosmic tales, And if you are adamant about that, drop us a line, hit us up an email or on Twitter, and we would love more feedback and comments. We begin with Thor 131, They Strike from Space. This was written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inking by Vince Coletta, et lettering by Artie Simic, 
edited by Stan Lee, cover by Jack Kirby, and Celestial Guided Tours by Irving Forbush. On this cover, Thor stands in the middle ground before the globe of the Earth, interposing his body in front of the strange alien devices that menace towards him from the off-screen foreground. The background is a busy starscape, one we've come to be very familiar with over these episodes. Thor is fairly recognizable at this point to his popular modern counterpart. He's an incredibly muscular guy with blonde hair, a tunic with circles on it, a bright red cape, a helmet with wings on it, and of course, course, Mjolnir, his magic hammer. The issue opens wrapping up from the previous Thor and Hercules adventure. None of it's particularly relevant right now, so we're going to move on to Thor sneaking away from the Olympians to teleport himself back to Asgard after this last adventure. Enough is enough. Odin will let him marry Jane Foster, or he will no longer be the god of thunder. Clearly, we've started at just the right moment. (laughs) But at that moment, Jane is on a cross-country bus? Why is that? We learn that even though she didn't want to leave New York, she was compelled to do so by the strange power of her once roommate, Tana Nile. We then immediately cut to Tana Nile in Jane's apartment, who bursts into crackling energy. Declaring that she has learned all she needs to know about Earth, she has fulfilled the basic task of a space colonizer. She transforms into a large-headed, very pink alien with a pretty rockin' design and a changing cosmic view screen on her chests. And I love the design of her helmet because her baby hairs are laid on top of her helmet. This is style, honey. Colonizer Nile contacts her command planet on Rigel and stakes a claim on Earth. We are immediately treated to a full-page spread of Rigel command base with crackling Kirby Cosmos in the background, spaceships of all sorts of designs float by starbase architecture that looks absolutely monumental in scale. Rigelians standing on floating disks segue themselves through the air around all of this. Kirby is out here killing the game. Colonizer Nile gets a hold of the claims division, and everything seems to be in order. They dispatch a team to inspect the claim, but Nile tries to dissuade them, saying that it may lead to battle. They send the team anywhere, and the claims division reminds her that, ahem, colonizers are invincible, except for the menace of the Black Galaxy. Ahem. Wow, this stuff is really on the nose, isn't it? The only thing that's unfortunate is the colonizers. Some of them have Asian caricature features. If you context this comic as an expression of yellow peril, it is a whole lot less enjoyable than the anti-colonial diatribe it seems to be going for. But we'll run with the flattering interpretation. It was written by Stan Lee, and Stan Lee says, don't be a bigot. So, having returned to Asgard... Thor enters his father's celestial chess game. Odin gives him a classic, Blood of my blood, thou mayest approach the presence. And so Thor entreats Odin to let him marry Jane, to which he gets a, Thy love for Jane Foster hath endured for lo these many months. It hath overcome every obstacle. I shall deny it no longer. Thor is absolutely overjoyed that he can now marry Jane Foster. 
Odin gets some more great lines as Thor giddily runs down the Bifrost. Honestly, Odin is a total show stealer here. Upon returning to Earth and hastily making his way to Jane's apartment, Thor is greeted by an extraterrestrial blast to the face. Inside, Niall is concerned that Thor is too strong, but the inspection team are convinced of their superiority. Thor flies back into the fray, only to be taken down by some high-tier psionics. There aren't any special effects for this, and that's refreshing. Colonizer Nile then monologues her plan to become the colonial empress of a captive planet Earth. Apparently, they have a device called a space lock that can adjust planets' orbits all the way from Rigel. So she can hold the entire planet ransom by moving it closer to or further from the sun. Now, Thor is having none of this, so he overcomes the mind thrust with dauntless will, only to be captured by a proton coagulant ray. That sounds gross. Thor pretends to be helpless while encased in this coagulant ray, which generates a clear cube around him so he can learn more about the Rogelians. With that, the Rogelians take him back to their ship and start off. They keep mentioning the Black Galaxy and how they must never go there, or how only a creature that can defeat their mind thrust lives there. As they're taking off in their ship, Thor decides he's had enough of this ruse, and he gives them the hammer. That is such a a Thor move. (laughs) The Regillians, for their part, turn themselves infinitely massive, and they attack Thor, It seems like it hurt a bunch, but Thor rebounds, saying, "'Tis I, who am a god of thunder. Tis I, who am master of the storms of space. The fury and the force of the elements themselves are mine. Not all thy science, not all thy density can save thee from the power of Thor.'" And just like that, he knocks the aliens out and continues on to Rigel. Next up, we have Thor 132, Where Gods May Fear to Tread. Written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inking by Vince Coletta, lettering by Sam Rosen, alien translation by Irving Forbush, edited by Stan Lee, and cover by Jack Kirby. So on this cover, Thor strides forward in the midground, and he's bashing apart Rogelian colonizer weaponry as he's shot at by more of them in both the foreground and the background. This cover has a really great sense of motion and impact, and it really sells Thor's heroic figure. What a way to start, too. The first page is a spread where Thor's being stopped by a delightfully nonsensical spacecraft. It's pulling him over like a toll booth, and it's asking Thor to identify himself. The starscape behind is roiling with energy and busy with planets, and I keep thinking this is going to get old one day, but it doesn't. I just like that. Quick tangent, when I learned that space wasn't actually like this, I was older than I'd care to admit, and it still makes me sad. I love this. So, the colonizers here see Thor and immediately take him as an enemy. Thor says that he's just here to free Earth from the space lock, but if they get in his way, he will unleash his boundless wrath upon them. So, naturally, the Rogelians are insulted that someone is threatening them and immediately try to board Thor's ship. All it takes is one throw of his Uru hammer, however, and the Rogelians are defeated. A far cry from last issue's tough fight, he takes over the enemy ship without any difficulty and he heads to Rigel. 
Meanwhile, back on Earth, Tana Nile is walking around in public as an alien and, of course, is stopped by a New York police officer who kindly offers to take her to their leader. While the entire time he's thinking about taking her into the station, she's ready to abolish all of Earth's governments and is already pulling Earth out of ov orbit. So overall, this scene just reads as comedy gold. While Thor is approaching their home system, the Rogelians launch a robot at Thor called an Indestructible. It's a large green humanoid robot, not much else to say there, and it immediately begins fighting the Thunder God. Thor whips up an atomic storm and hammers the robot with it, but it seems completely unaffected. Seeing that it's pretty big and slow, Thor rushes in and manages to turn its beam weaponry on itself. The Rogelians on the ship are amazed at Thor's feat of prowess, and one of them just has to say, Only the Black Galaxy itself can so fill my heart with fear. So of course, at that exact moment, in another part of space, a deadly beam erupts from the Black Galaxy and destroys a heavily armed Rigel space cruiser. In the Rigel Control Center, a lone and weary figure watches the fate of said cruiser on a crystal view screen atop a contraption of a computer. This is the Grand Commissioner of Rigel, and he never asked for any of this. Apparently, he has the highest IQ of all the Rigelians, and so he has no choice but to serve his supreme office. He's hatching a plan to solve both Thor's invasion and the Black Galaxy issue, so he goes to power the planetoid via a matter transmitter. I wonder if it's similar to the transmat system on Asteroid M. A, a lot of these devices seem to function off of the same like basic alien technology premises. Yeah, probably. So Thor arrives at the same time and prepares to destroy the space lock. As he flies out of his hijacked spacecraft, he's grabbed by an invisible force. As soon as he lands, Thor just lays into them, saying, Back, ye scurrilous knaves, though you be as many as sand on the shore, none may stay my hammer's vengeance. Earth is no unprotected wasteland to be conquered and pillaged by such as thee. Back then, before the fury of a god, my wrath shall be unabated so long as yonder space lock endures. Let him who would defy me stand forth, else surrender all while yet ye may. Thus speaks Thor, prince of Asgard, son of lordly Odin. Classic. Just before Thor's about to unleash his hammer against the space lock, he's stopped by the Grand Commissioner. He makes a deal with Thor to solve a much greater danger in exchange for Earth's freedom. The Grand Commissioner is convinced that the Black Galaxy represents a threat to the lives of everything in the universe, even Earth. There is a brief Jane Foster interlude here as she is unable to stop traveling at this point. Now, this isn't relevant to this story, but rather to the main story of 134, which we won't be covering. But gosh, I love the High Evolutionary. So Thor heads into the Black Galaxy with a humanoid machine pilot known only as Recorder. Recorder ends up being a recurring character for Thor, so he's worth pointing out as this being his first appearance. We get some trippy visualizations of the strange blackness about them before Recorder computes that the entire universe is composed of living biological matter. And there, in the dark they come upon an incredible figure, the first appearance of 
Ego, the living planet. It's a planet with a man's face on it. And this image is unlike any appearance of Ego I've ever seen before. Remember how we always bring up that sharp artistic change when Kirby uses clips for his art? Well, here Ego doesn't just have a humanoid face. It's the face of a person. It's jarring and not a little bit scary. Now on to Thor 133, They Strike from Space. It's written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inking by Vince Coletta, lettered by Artie Simic, edited by Stan Lee, and cover by Jack Kirby. On this cover, Recorder and Thor stand in the foreground as a legion of faceless figures charge at them from the writhing mass of Ego that stares out at them from the background. This is also a very different face of Ego than is seen in the book, but the blank, intense stare is harrowing. As far as I can tell, the full-page spread on page one of Thor and Recorder reacting is really just a prelude to the two-page spread on page two. This unique vision of the surface of Ego the Living Planet is absolutely stunning. Some swaths of it look like melted flesh, others structured hexagons. It's a whirling, writhing mass of biological chaos. But don't take our word for it. Go and check out the visual companion for this one. It's one of my favorite two-page spreads that we've done so far. It's awesome. So Ego addresses Thor and Recorder saying that he is the largest and most powerful intelligence in all of infinity. But to make communication easier, he reads Thor's thoughts and constructs a simulacrum of Asgard along with horses and a humanoid body to interact with Thor. Ego takes his guests through a bizarre stitched-together memoryscape of their own devising and informs them that it's time for Ego to leave the Black Galaxy and conquer all of space. There is another Jane interlude here, but once again, that's not our story. Ego brings Thor to a castle to talk, and he's monologuing about how, though the Rigelian colonizers were no contest for his awesome power, he knew that there were stronger beings in this universe and has called Thor here to test his might. Eagle believes that if he can defeat Thor in human form, he can make countless copies of that form and take it all over the universe, conquering everything. Thor isn't having that and raises his hammer, saying, Conquest. Though thou may be supreme in thine own world, the madness is upon thee too. Know ye then, the hammer of Thor shall strike against thee whilst life remains within my limbs. Frustrated by this, Ego blasts Thor, but Recorder points out that Ego cheated. He's supposed to beat the Thunder God in human form. Ego insists that it's just an oversight and forms a body to fight with. It's a roiling purple humanoid mass of flesh with a hexagon head called an antibody. Oh, yikes, that pun. Yeah, Recorder is catching all of this, and he needs to recharge as Thor prepares to battle the antibody. However, with but a thought, Ego whisks it away. Ego says he has no need for Thor anymore. He's been enabled to create an endless number of these creatures, 
and recorder doing their level best tries to stop thor from immediately threatening the planet that they are standing on which is pretty fair Thor and Recorder chat a bit about how alien and strange this place where the land, the sea, and the air are actually alive and are actually ego. Right on cue, they hear the onrushing torrent of a bottomless sea. Ego is trying to wash them away with a flood, so Thor and Recorder jump into a giant skin pour? As they travel through the capillary, Recorder notes that there are foreign bodies there, just in time for the antibodies to attack. We get an astounding full-page spread here of the antibodies swarming Recorder and Thor. They've basically made a tower out of themselves, pressing up as they seek to grapple with the Thunder God. Odinson has had enough of this and unleashes his godly wrath, toppling untold masses of antibodies with a single FATOOM! Back on Earth, Tana Nile is having a hard time getting through to the cops. She's still claiming to be the new Empress of Earth, and when pressed, she gets grumpy and orders the space lock increased. However, at the intercosmic switchboard, her request is denied. Orders are to end colonization and return to Rigel. Nile is furious and tries to argue, but just gets hung up on. Tana Nile is hilarious? This is completely unexpected. Back on Ego, Recorder and Thor are being swept away into a maze of arterial tunnels. Rocks and gravel pelt our heroes that note that every stone is like a cell of a living body, and they possess Ego's will to destroy. Recorder's taking the brunt of it, and as they're being buried by debris, Recorder is becoming an operative. They caution Thor to abandon them, being just a machine, but Thor digs them out. He's unwilling to desert a faithful and true companion, and this sparks in Recorder the emotion of gratitude for the very first time. It's a fairly touching moment. Recorder really grows on me through this. Thor is now no longer playing and unleashes a dread incantation. In the name of mighty Odin, by the fury of the thunder, let the winds which fill the cosmos tear this world asunder. Let the lightning and the gale pierce this mighty planet to the core. Let the storm now humble ego, thus commands the mighty Thor. And so Thor unleashes a universe-shaking thermoblast, which I'm going to imagine is short for thermonuclear. Ego has been bested, and while Thor is flying away, he says that this is the first time in countless millennia, so he's sealing off the Bioverse, and he'll never again attack Rigel or seek to invade other galaxies. With that out of the way, Thor is headed back to Rigel, and then Earth. Wrapping up, we have Thor 134, The People Breeders. Written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inking by Vince Coletta, lettering by Sam Rosen, edited by Stan Lee, and covered by Jack Kirby. Now, we aren't covering a lot of this comic, but if you get a chance, the High Evolutionary is totally bonkers, and we might actually just have to come back for the other half of this story sometime later. The issue of Ego having been laid to rest, Thor and Recorder are flying back towards Rigel when they get picked up by a 
colonizer cruiser. The Rigelians laud Thor, saying that he has done the impossible and that the order has already been given to free Earth when suddenly they pick up an approaching massive energy signature. And it's already almost upon them and they have to immediately take evasive maneuvers. The Rigelians and Thors are confused as to what has just happened, but we the reader are treated to the sight of the majestic Galactus. Galactus is hungry and has registered an abundance of life energy in the Black Galaxy. He does not do so out of greed, hate, or ambition, but because he is Galactus and he must feed. I straight up hollered in the break room when I turned the page and saw Galactus. He's incredible whenever he decides to just interject himself into another thing going on. He's great. So back on Earth, Tananile is still trying to talk to a Rigelian supervisor. She doesn't know what went wrong with her first colonization when the answer is nothing. Escorts show up to take her back to Rigel. It's a bit of a confusing sequence as Nile is taken into custody, but then is informed that due to her part in ridding Nigel from the threat of the Black Galaxy, her new assignment is Wife of the High Commissioner? Apparently Ton and Nile has loved him from afar for years, so... Happy ending? Happy ending. This is... a lot of episode. Uh... We have the first appearance of a, a good handful of cosmic figures that we're actually going to see, like, a lot more uh, moving forward. I was just really impressed by this introduction to Ego the Living Planet. I, I had never read these books before, and I have always found Ego to be a really compelling fixture in the Marvel Universe, but this really got into the nitty-gritty right away and really makes me excited to explore Ego's stories more as we continue forward. Yeah, this this story is dense. It's, it's about 80 pages total if you include all the backstories and the, the high evolutionary stuff, but like it's a pleasure to read. And there, like you, like you said, there's just so much packed into here. Uh, the the Regellians are pretty thoroughly fleshed out for being kind of monster of the week, alien of the week kind of stuff. Like at the start, and uh, Recorder is extremely interesting, and I want to get to know them more. It's it's a great way to be introduced to Thor, honestly. Yeah, and um, like. I am really, really interested in watching the the rise of Regellians because uh, on down the line, I, I know what happens to them. And whenever that comes down, I think that'll be that'll be some great coverage for us. Uh, I do want to take a moment and call special attention to the backstory of these issues just because it is so good. It does not have to do with cosmic adventures at all. It has to do with Asgardians fighting, you know, barbarians and a barbarian leader. And it's extremely compelling. And then in 
134, we get the first appearance of Fafnir. And if you're a Thor fan, you know who Fafnir is. And that had me so excited when I turned the page and saw that. It is worth diving into every page of these issues. Yeah, yeah, I I absolutely have to agree. It's a very interesting dynamic in these early comics where there's two parallel running stories of Thor in the book, but like one tends to be here's Thor doing his own thing or like Thor is on Earth and he's with Jane or, you know, Thor is fighting uh, Dr. Hyde for the umpteenth time. And then the other one is like, it's Thor and the Warriors 3 doing something directly Asgardian related. And those stories would technically qualify for the purview of our podcast. But because they're in their own way, they are like terrestrially Asgardian, if that makes any sense. I don't necessarily think they super fit. But I strongly, strongly suggest that you go and read these issues and read both storylines. And I mean, there's a ton of Volstag, and Volstag is the best. Like, there's no argument with that. Volstag is awesome. So if you want to read the issues we covered today, as we highly recommend, you can find them collected in Essential Thor Volume 2, Marvel Masterworks Thor Mighty Thor Volume 5, Thor Epic Collections Volume 3, and the Mighty Thor Omnibus Volume 2, as well as digitally on Comixology and Marvel Unlimited. Or you can always ask your local library. Now, if you would like to know more about Thor, there is a really great podcast that covers Simonson Thor uh, that's called The Lightning and the Storm. Uh, it's a great listen. I strongly suggest it. And also, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, odds are good you might be interested in listening to that podcast. Also, reading Simonson Thor is fantastic, so do that as well. And then, basically, from Jason Aaron's Thor, God of Thunder onwards, it's an epic. One of the, I would say, true Marvel epics of our time. It's worth a read. Now, if you'd like to know more about Ego, his origin story is covered in Thor 228. There's no way we're going to be missing that in our coverage, but it's a good read. You could go to it. And also, more recently, modernly speaking, there's this fun part in Nova Volume Thor where Ego the Living Planet becomes the new Xandar, and it's a really great riff on Mogo and the Green Lantern Rings with Ego and the Novacore. And it just makes me smile, like, unabashedly every time I think about it. So maybe give it a shot. I, I would also say Ego plays a not insignificant part in Silver Surfer Black. We've shouted Black out before, but it is incredible. And uh, definitely, if you want more ego, that's another place to turn. Absolutely. Also, just quick note, uh, Lightning in the Storm, that's the podcast I mentioned at the top that got me to go ahead and read Simonson Thor. I, I also highly recommend that. Oh, and if you want more Recorder, just stay tuned because there's going to be more Recorder really soon. If sacred places are spared the ravages of war, then make all places sacred. 
And if the holy people are to be kept harmless from war, then make all peoples holy. This has been Artifacts of Infinity. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Everett. And this was edited by Everett Christensen. We will see you in the infinite cosmos.